Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hello, brewers and beer lovers. Greetings, greetings. Ah, there you are, Palmer. I had to make my own intro for this one. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. You know, I gotta just, I gotta be my own man sometimes, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what we're always telling you. you know? <laughs> exactly. I'm finally trying to listen. Uh, uh, my name's Justin Crosley. I'm filling in for Jamil Zanishev today, uh, and I'm here with our, our friend John Palmer, of course. Um, yep. And joining us in the studio to help us with today's topic are our other friend, Brian Shar. Hello, gentlemen. How's it going? Doing very well. And Brian, yeah. I, I never... Is it Master BJCP, Grandmaster, Super Duper, Excellent? <laughs> I always forget what's the what's the full title. I'm, I'm an Ultra Master 7 at this point. No, I'm just a Grandmaster. It's just an ordinary Grandmaster, grandmaster 1. I just. put on my pants one leg at a time and drink one <laughs> beer at a time, maybe two. Right. Like anyone else. Just like everybody else. You exactly. Just, you just happen to know every detail of what you drink uh, when you're putting your pants on. Uh, you Sadly, yes. <laughs> so uh, Brian's here to help us with today's topic uh, because I would be useless at it, um, and that is common off flavors found in your beer and and the brewing process, right, John? Yep, yep. We're gonna do kind of go over some of these. You know, you may consider them basics, but uh, they are without doubt, you know, off flavors that occur. You know, in beers in every competition we judge. Right. And a big part of what we are doing in competition is trying to uh, explain to the brewer, you know, where these, uh, what these uh, off flavors are that we're detecting and where they come from and so that they can better correct them. And I like that you point out, you know, that these might sound like or, or, or be some of the basics, but uh, not only are they found in competition all the time, as John said, but I find them in professional beer, in craft beer, uh, you oh, know, yeah. all too often as well. So just because you think you, you might have covered these bases or you know about it, I encourage you not to tune out just yet because uh, some of these things still get through. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Brian, I mean, and Justin, we kind of refer to these as the usual suspects when <laughs> during competition. Okay. Oh, and because yeah, uh, yeah they are they are prevalent. And um, and the interesting thing about um, beers in competition and all flavors in general is that um, a lot of them develop over time. You know, they can be the result of oxidation or staling processes. So, mm. um, you know, you may you may taste the beer at packaging and think, okay, it's great. And then, you know, you deliver it to your customers. Well, you know, uh, a month, two months, three months down the road, 
your beer could develop these off flavors, um, and you may not know it or realize it. So that's where another where competition, uh, sending your beers out to be judged, can be very beneficial in terms of understanding uh, how your beer is performing in the marketplace. And especially for, well, I guess all brewers, but I'm thinking as a home brewer right now, if I've sent some beer into a competition, and I know that it's maybe not going to be judged for a week or two or, or, or it could be three weeks, I don't know, uh, I've still got some of that beer on hand at home, you should taste it the day that you know that beer is being judged, and you'll probably have a better idea of what the judges are tasting then than the day you packaged it, right? That's a very good good idea, yeah, yeah. Fill out a score sheet yourself. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you uh, can't fix it by then, but maybe your score sheet will line up with with the judges. Or if it doesn't, um, that will be good information for you as well. A lot of our listeners on Dr. Homebrew do that with us if they call in live, and they'll drink their beer with us. Mm. And what's fascinating is we've had many people send their beer in, and they're drinking it off their keg, Mm -hmm. and they bottled a few for us. And they're like, well, I don't get what you're tasting. Well, maybe there was something that happened at packaging. But when you have people that bottled and they keep a bottle for themselves and drink it with us, it is really interesting how many folks will say, oh, yeah, this doesn't taste like it tasted you know, a month ago when I yeah. sent it to you. And and that's a, just an excellent point. You should package the whatever you've sent it in for, package it that way yourself. Don't just, because, you know, and, and we hear this all the time. In fact, I've heard, mm. I've heard JP do it. I've heard others do it. You start reading your judge's score sheet, and you're like, well, that's bullshit. I didn't taste that. Those bastards, <laughs> those stupid judges. Well, yours is off the keg, and theirs is in the bottle that you sent. Right. So uh, make sure you keep yours around. And, you know, professional breweries, uh, not even at, at competition. You know, you send beer out to market and put it on the shelf, put another one in your cold box and taste that in two weeks, you know? Yeah. So, okay. Well, uh, I want to do a quick thanks to our friend John Blickman over at Blickman Engineering. Um, they do great work over there, and he's just such a strong supporter of, of this program and the homebrew community at large. Uh, they make great things, uh, including their line of Anvil products, uh, which are on the uh, a little more affordable side and, and designed in partnership with John Palmer here. That's right. Great products and uh, very durable. Last you a lifetime. So check them out anvilbrewing.com. There we go. All right. So we're going to discuss these common off flavors, and I guess we should, you know, separate, you know, what happens on the hot side, and and then some of these things happen on the cold side, and I'm sure some carry through, and we're going to talk about all that, but John, you want to just start with the hot side? Sure. Yeah. Um, Well, hot side, you know... And if if uh, in our audience you're not familiar with hot side versus cold side, it's pretty basic. Uh, hot side refers to everything um, up to the end of the boil. When the word is chilled, and then you uh, pitch your yeast. So from the from the time the word is chilled to and and pitched, uh, that's the cold side on out through ferment. Fermentation. So, hot side is things that happen uh, before or during the boil. And um, I guess one of the one of the first off flavors that you can uh, realize on the hot side is astringency. And this typically comes from uh, the the husks from your grain. You can get you can get a very grainy flavor, and that's not necessarily astringency. Astringency is that dry puckering quality to uh, a beer 
that, you know, you feel it along the sides of your tongue, well, all over your tongue. It's a kind of a coating sensation. And uh, one of the best examples is if you oversteep a uh, hot tea, a black tea, you know, uh, drink a very strong cup of tea that has that astringency uh, character to it. Okay. Uh, what are your thoughts, Brian? Yeah, that's that's just nasty. Mm. And sometimes, yeah, it's easy enough to recreate at home, just like you say, with a you know, li- suck on a tea bag for a little bit, or make yeah. some tea that's overly overly strong. Uh, and yeah, that's one of those things that's also very pH dependent too, right? Where without right. getting too much into the weeds here. Uh, the oversparging uh, can be an issue. Uh, the high, high temperature sparging can be an issue with astringency. But then people do decoctions and they boil the the grain, hmm. and you don't get an astringency issue because you, it's a process where the pH changes, and you're not just steeping it really hot for a while or sparging it really hot and washing those tannins and things into the the wort. Okay, but you know, right. frankly, it's one of those things that. Um, I don't know. I haven't seen that or experienced that in competition for a long time. I think maybe people are getting better at this. I see. But yeah. John, have you have you ex- experienced a lot of astringency lately? Um, most <clears throat> most of the competitions I judge are in uh, Mexico or South America, mm. and you know you get you get the occasional astringent beer, say one or two per competition. Um, yeah, it isn't it isn't rampant. And usually, uh, a comment on astringency is not a, a, a show killer for a beer. Right. Um, you'll you'll say, yeah, it's, there's some astringency, um, but uh, you know the beer can still be you know scored in the 30s hmm. uh, without much trouble. It's um, right. it's going to be a good beer. It's just yeah, you've got got some astringency issues. Check your you know check your mash, your pH. Um, or, you know, it could be, for instance, say too much of a very toasty malt or like a brown malt in a recipe um, that can also give uh, some of this kind of astringent flavor uh, without being terribly astringent. Yeah, it's one of those things that can't you can mistake it for if you're not careful some things like high hop bitterness or certain ingredients mm. or even certain types of wood aging right, can right. come across as very astringent, but it's not astringent. Kind of in the way that a, a Pilsner can have a sweetness to it, but it's not under attenuated. Right. right? Just their ingredients can be tricky, and you, you can, if you're not experienced with judging that stuff, sometimes you can pick out astringency when it's really not there. So I'm glad you say that because as you guys were describing this, and I'm, I kept waiting for more descriptions because this is one that I struggle with. That there's, to me, there, there's almost a fine line between a nice dry beer. Mm-hmm. And then this astringency that comes up, and I confuse it sometimes with like an acrid flavor. Um, in other words, if you sat me down, uh, I'd have a hard time telling you this beer is astringent. To me, I, I might pick up some tannin or just yeah. say it's overly dry. I don't know what. Um, so it's a tricky one for me, even though it's fairly simplistic. Yeah. It can be tricky for everyone. That's a very good point, Justin. I think one key aspect of astringency is it's lingering on the tongue. Okay. Right. Whereas a whereas a dryness sort of the beer dries out, it goes away. You're ready for another sip. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's that's helpful. All right. What else on the hot side, John? 
Uh, well, DMS, corn aroma is very common. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, uh, you know, how, how do you, would you describe that flavor, Brian? Yeah, definitely a cooked corn, cooked shrimp. Uh, ah, shrimp, it's, yes. Uh, sort of a seafood or mm. like a, a seafood boil, shrimp shells, something like that. Uh, not pleasant shrimp, like, mmm, I'm going to have no, uh, no. have an appetizer, I'm going to have some dinner right now, but more of that, you, these shells have been sitting around for a little while after I took them off that shrimp I cooked. Uh, it's it's not pleasant. Okay. Mm-hmm. It can also manifest as... Uh, uh, like a tomato leaf uh, aroma and flavor in dark beers, uh, due to the you know slightly different um, um, uh, malt bill. You know it, the the aroma changes a little bit from the cooked corn going to more tomato leaf. Okay, in my opinion, and and this comes from from grains. This yeah, this comes from the malt. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, dimethyl sulfide and dimethyl sulfonate sulfone i've uh, forgotten that's okay dmso I, I to, yeah <laughs> dmso uh, check out how to brew i'm sure i talk about it in there right <laughs> and uh but yeah it's it's a, a chemical that volatilizes during the boil and so if you're not boiling your wort long enough um you can have uh high levels of, D, of the precursor in the wort that uh converts to dms and you can have end up having dms in the beer um is it is this an issue with all grains every type of grain that we put in the mash well it's it's most prevalent in your low kilned malts specifically your 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 light colored base malts so like your pilsner malt your american two row um and other continental pilsners that have very low color um, stout malt would be another one. Um, that's where you have more of this precursor uh, left in the grain. That and so the the wort therefore needs a longer boil, say up to ninety minutes or so, mm. um, to help volatilize that out and keep DMS out of the beer. Your pale ale malts that have been kilned at a higher temperature have had more of this. Uh, this precursor denatured and and uh, volatilized during the during the malting and kilning process, and so pale ale malts uh, and likewise Vienna and Munich malts have lower levels of these precursors, okay, and lower member lower levels of DMS in the final beer, but easily corrected with uh, a sixty minute boil. Basically. A longer boil. A longer yeah. boil, okay. A longer yeah. uncovered boil, too. And uncovered doesn't mean you have to keep the lid totally off your kettle. Mm. Right? I used to brew outside all the time, and I, had a, uh, I would brew 10-gallon batches with 20-gallon kettles to make sure I had plenty of headspace. Mm-hmm. So uncovered, quote, to me meant I would move the lid off to the side an inch or two. So I would still be able to, because outside it might be cold. I mean, it's, okay, not, not, it's, it was the peninsula here in the Bay Area. Oh, it might have been 40, <laughs> 45. Yeah. It's not like brewing in Minnesota. Yeah. But still, from a standpoint of being able to get to a boil, it would be mostly covered. And I was outside, mm-hmm. so I didn't want stuff falling off of trees into my kettle or birds pooping seagulls. in it or something. Yeah, yeah seagulls. Sure. Uh, it's, that's not, I guess you would, it would be all sterilized from the boil, but nobody wants poop in their beer. No, no. Uh, that's a different, different kind of <laughs> off flavor we probably wouldn't talk about today. Uh, 
But uh, all you have to do is move that lid off center by an inch or two, and you'll have plenty. I mean, there's plenty of room for the DMS to go out. Okay. Uh, the, the conventional wisdom from years ago, and it was correct, was don't boil with the lid on your kettle. One, it's going to just make a mess, and it's going to be loud and everything else. But B, it's, that's going to prevent enough DMS from blowing off mm-hmm. uh, to result in problems. Okay. So easily fixed. Easily fixed. All right. Mm-hmm. And then, Palmer, in your outline for us, you brought up another one on the hot side that neither Char or I know anything about. Ah, good old <laughs> Strecker aldehydes. Okay, what are these guys? Well, um, during the boil, we talk about Maillard reactions, right? Maillard reactions are these browning reactions, non-enzymatic reactions that occur between an amino acid and a sugar, and they, they create... Uh, flavor compounds and color. Um, in, in, to a large extent, um, beer would not be beer without the boil, without the cooking aspect of the boil that creates some of these Maillard reactions and help, really helps generate some of the, the malty flavors that we expect from beer. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the flip side of that coin is that while uh, there are um, there are other aspects of the Browning reaction, the Maillard reactions, uh, called um, Strecker aldehydes or uh, alde- uh, degradation aldehydes, and what happens is that these amino acids that are in the boil will get oxidized by um, other compounds and form aldehydes. And so you can get uh, aldehydes such as acetaldehyde or um, furfural or um, there's a, another uh, – there's, there's several that can be formed by um, uh, al- uh, amino acid aldehyde degradation. Um, uh, mercaptans are another, you know, formed from some of the, uh, the sulfur-containing amino acids. So um, – Usually, usually aldehyde formation is not a big problem during the boil, um, but you know, depending on your malt build, depending on the thermal load and the intensity of the boil, uh, you can ha- generate uh, some of these off flavors. So just to have that out there, be aware of it. Um, you know. Boil your wort, but don't boil the crap out of it. Okay, I was just going to ask. So there is a way to prevent this. Just don't go crazy with this thing, with your yeah, boil. Yeah. Okay. We talk about a good boil, and, we, and Jamil and I have talked about this many times. You know, what is a good rolling boil? Yeah. Um, and you want to have activity at the surface. You want to have, you know, uh, you know, bubbles popping at the surface and so on, and, and get, seeing that wort churn in the, in the kettle. Um, and get, you know, say uh, anywhere from about 10% evaporation on the homebrew scale, uh, uh, you know, good evaporation rate to get that rid of that DMS and so on. But if you do it too much, if your boil is too hard, then you can ge- generate more of these uh, Strecker aldehydes. Got it. 
Yeah, Jamil would always say the, your wort doesn't need to be leaping out of the pot. Hmm. And I would literally always think about that in my backyard when I was boiling. I would, Am I boiling? And uh, is it boiling enough? And I said, well, Jamil says it shouldn't be leaping out of the pot. Yeah, so yeah. that was always in my head. Mine leapt out of the pot more than I, more than I care to admit. <laughs> so, all right. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, and there's a lot more to talk about on the cold side. So we're going to cover that here on Brew Strong. Hang in there, and we'll be back after these words. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. That's right. Thanks so much for hanging out with us here on Brew Strong. It's me, Justin. We've got Brian Shar and John Palmer, and we were talking about uh, common off flavors. Uh, before the break, we talked about the hot side. And, and now, Mr. Palmer, take us through the cold side. All right. Well, cold side is stuff that happens during fermentation. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm sure, Brian, you'll agree. And Justin, you, you've heard, um, talked about this, I'm sure. You know, you can... 90% of a beer is the fermentation. You can't have a good beer without a good fermentation. Mm-hmm. So anytime you have exactly. fermentation stress, that's where we start getting some off flavors. Yeah. And and of course, you know, this is something that, that Jamil taught me and, and that's taught so many brewers over the years. Uh, fermentation, fermentation, fermentation. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so and and avoiding stress, uh, of course, just you know, quickly is is proper pitch rate. Uh, definitely temperature controlled for you home brewers. Um, right. Some some you know simple things. Just go back and listen to the shows. Um, you know, healthy yeast, proper pitch rate, and and temperature control. Um, if we fail at any of these things, I guess we're going to talk about what can happen, Palmer. Yeah. So. Um, yeast growth rate uh, has a lot to do with, um, uh, well, I should say the stress uh, on the yeast has a lot, to, has a big effect on their growth rate. And their growth rate, has, therefore, has a big effect on the byproducts that they kick off into the worts and beer as they ferment it. <coughs> Excuse me. So... Um, like a very common off flavor in beer is acetaldehyde. And uh, we typically describe this as being a green apple or sliced pumpkin or latex paint kind of aroma. Hmm. Um, you're probably familiar with this. Um, the I've recently 
learned or maybe surmised that the green apple character is probably due to a couple of specific esters that get formed uh, in in cases where lots of acetaldehyde is being uh, kicked off. And so I think the the actual room of acetaldehyde is probably more similar to the latex paint. Hmm. And by this, we mean like if, you know, if you've ever painted your bedroom or something like that, and you walk in and that paint is curing, it has a, you know, a kind of a chemically smell. Yeah. And I think that is the actual base aroma of acetaldehyde. The sliced pumpkin is probably yet another ester uh, that is, you know, coincides with high acetaldehyde production, and and the same for the green apple. Okay, that's interesting about those being kind of coesters. Because yeah, I hadn't hadn't read that uh, yet, and I had uh, our friend Nicole Ernie taught me probably January of this year. Uh, during a Dr. Homebrew where I brought a beer in that was terrible. Uh, it had classic homebrew taste. Mm. I didn't make a yeast starter. Gosh, imagine that. Oh, I'll just use two packs. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh-huh. It tasted really pumpkin-y. Mm. And uh-huh. she's like, that's acetaldehyde. Said, what do you mean? You taste that pumpkin? Like, oh, God damn it. Yes, I taste the pumpkin. I smell the pumpkin. <laughs> she says, that, that's acetaldehyde. So um, another good reason, as you mentioned, for fermentation, prop, pitch enough yeast, pitch healthy yeast, wake it up first, even if you're going to, if you have any opportunity at all, get that yeast at least awake before yeah. you, you pitch it. But yeah, that, that's yeah. interesting about the pumpkin and the apple, because I've never really gotten the apple out of acetaldehyde, but it makes sense that it's maybe a co-ester that's produced when the acetaldehyde is produced mm-hmm. in yeah. some circumstances. Yeah, I've, I've unfortunately had a couple of cidery beers over the years, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, one was in a, <clears throat> a much highly anticipated barley wine that would prove to be undrinkable oh, uh, because of it. But uh, yeah, so acetaldehyde can be a big problem, and um, again, a stressful fermentation will kick off more of it. It is... Um, if the yeast are fermenting too fast, and this could be because the temperature is too warm, mm. or if you didn't pitch enough yeast, and there, there's, in other words, there's an overabundance of nutrients for them to work on, they'll, they'll, their growth weight will increase. Uh, they'll end up kicking off more acetaldehyde. Also, if the yeast is is old, um, if it doesn't have uh, enough zinc. And Jamil and I have talked about this on other shows, on Bruce Strong shows. Um, yeast need zinc as a cofactor to reduce acetaldehyde to alcohol. So that can be another cause of uh, acid, strong, high acetaldehyde in a beer. Another one that I don't see too much anymore, uh, but I remember, gosh, it was probably 10 years ago, when everybody was racing to get their beer out of primary. Got to mm. get it out of primary. Got to oh, get yeah. it off that yeast. Oh, my God. If it, they'll, they'll be autolysis. And people were racing to get their beer off of the yeast cake, like, in three, four, five, six days. Okay. And that's not usually enough time, uh, you know, especially not three days. Even a week, a week might be okay if you're testing with a, a hydrometer or refractometer and you know how your, how your beer fermentation is going to go. But, man, people were racking to secondary way too soon. Mm. 
they were uh, sort of killing fermentation halfway. Uh, certainly, there's still yeast in that beer, but you take it off of you know 95% of that healthy yeast, mm-hmm. uh, and just bad things would happen. But I don't see the, uh, uh, and I guess maybe that's a, a not even related to the the haze craze, right? Yeah, People yeah. want to keep the yeast around these days if they want a hazy beer. Now, even before uh, that, even before I'm, then, yeah, I agree with you. This isn't something that's too common uh, for me anymore. And people that used to be people would call into the session, Justin, or people would call into uh, you know one of these shows ten years back, and that was like a thing. People would call into Brew Strong about, yeah. oh my God, why do I have acetaldehyde? And Jamil would say, you don't don't put it in a secondary or wait wait longer, right? So yeah, don't yeah. don't don't be too much in a rush to get it off that yeast cake. You know, if you're going to be leaving it in your fermenter for three months and it's not temperature controlled, yeah, that's too long. Mm. But in a normal situation where it might be in your fermenter for two or three weeks, don't worry about it. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, from you know racking too soon, high acetaldehyde, high diacetyl. Diacetyl is another one. Um, again. Diacetyl is created by high growth rate and and a lack of nutrients. And so the um, or or conversely, an overabundance of nutrients that cause yeast to have to synthesize uh, some uh, particular amino acids. And that creates an intermediary compound called acetohydroxy acid that the yeast kick off into the word. It's a waste product um, that chemical uh, acetohydroxy acid has to oxidize into diacetyl before the yeast can take it up and uh, they will they will consume diacetyl and clean it up during the maturation phase of fermentation you know um, and uh, again if you pull the the beer out of the fermenter too soon or chill it too soon you can end up with uh, excess levels of diacetyl in the beer okay so another one that's fairly easy to fix, but worth pointing out, and this has come up again on, on the session shows recently with, with pro brewers, it's also one that sne- can sneak up on you later. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and there are tests that you can do. So in other words, you might taste your beer in the fermenter and not detect diacetyl. But, but Palmer, that doesn't mean that the, the, it's gone, that the precursor isn't still there. Is that correct? Right. That's right. You can have the precursor still there, especially if the beer is cold. Um, right. This is one reason we recommend diacetyl rest to raise the temperature of the beer. That helps this uh, precursor, the acetohydroxy, to chemically oxidize to diacetyl uh, at warmer temperatures. And uh, once it's converted to diacetyl, then the yeast can consume it. But if you chill too soon... You you know you basically drop the yeast. They don't they don't have time to consume it, or um, you could still have unconverted acetohydroxy hanging out in the bottle in the keg uh, for a couple of weeks until it warms up enough to convert, and then boom, you've got diacetyl in the keg. Right. And now this is one that is pervasive still today, uh, that we taste in homebrew and we taste in probrew. And by the way, there's a, well, it's not a new phenomenon, but with the, with all the hopping that breweries do now, um, 
Hop Creep has uh, introduced diacetyl in your beers. You should go listen to our Hop and Brew School podcast. There's a Hop Creep episode, um, and uh, we've kind of covered this this phenomenon how it happens. Um, diacetyl is still a pervasive thing in both homebrew and commercial beer, and and some of it is because they're not doing a rest, as if as if Palmer said. But sometimes it has snuck up on even the most uh, prolific brewers um, because of of what happens during Hop Creep. Yeah. Yep. Um, and what's really fascinating about diacetyl to me is this is one of those off flavors that so many people are blind to. Right? Mm. Every, every flavor that you can perceive has kind of a bell curve in terms of the percentage of the population that can perceive it. Diacetyl is kind of a funky bell curve where there's a significant minority of people. I, I don't know, John, is that maybe 25 you know, percent that can't even yeah. perceive it in any concentration? There's yep. a solid number of a non a significant minority of what, five or 10 percent that can perceive it in virtually any concentration. Right. And then there's people like me that are right in the middle of the road. And sometimes if it's just if it's really tiny, I can't get it. If it's moderate, I, I get it. So you can have diacetyl and not even realize you've got it yeah and what always i thought was kind of curious and john i'm curious about your thoughts on this diacetyl is is microwave popcorn butter flavor Mm -hmm. that's what they put on that stuff you get it at the store so if you buy that and you pop it and you eat it do you think if people are blind to diacetyl do they talk themselves into thinking they're tasting butter Mm. i mean the sense of taste is kind of that malleable Mm -hmm. yeah i don't yeah that that's a good question I, i wonder if maybe it's it's oversensitization, uh, desensitization, if you will, uh, to microwave popcorn. Maybe all these people that can't smell it right. eat tons of microwave popcorn. Mm, and, and that's in, really interesting. I never thought about that. But and that, in that a lot sense, that. you know, there might be just plenty that the threshold is so high. It's not that they yeah. can't detect it. It's just that the threshold is so high. Like that's a that's a super concentration of diacetyl, right? That's so a good point. I, I think it would I think it would be a rare person who can't <laughs> taste that, right? And yeah. That makes sense. You know what I found recently that I uh, I move along the spectrum that you that you just described. Hmm. Uh, sometimes I can detect it very easily. Sometimes uh, I'll be here at my bar, I'll be here at the Hop Grenade, and I'll go, "Oh, I really like that beer," and I'll hand it to, hmm. to one of my coworkers here, who and they'll go, "You mean that diacetyl bomb that you're tasting?" Um, <laughs> so my palate really, I don't know why. Uh, sometimes I can pin, I can pick it up in a second, and other times I go, "Oh, that's a nice uh, little sweetness to that beer." Yeah. Um, it's kind of well, strange. That is the kind of the interesting thing about diacetyl is that it. there is a different thresholds in different styles of beer for it Mm -hmm. and different. And then of course, then you add on that, you know, people's sensitivity to it Um, a little bit, you know, in your English bitter or your, your Czech lager can be perceived as having a nice uh, aspect to the maltiness, you know, and, and a little extra dimension to that maltiness that is very pleasant. Um, of course, then you have diacetyl bombs where it's like that's all you can smell. Mm. Um, it's never very good in IPAs. Um, but, uh, you know, some and, and darker beers uh, can often benefit from small amounts that, you know, would be completely noticeable in another style. Yeah. Yeah. And some people like it. You know, all right. my right. I went to a brewery when we first moved up north with my ex-wife. 
and we had it shall remain nameless because it's still in business. And it was small, and the brewer kindly took us on a tour and showed us everything. And she would not stop talking for twenty minutes about how buttery the stout was and how much she loved it. And wow. I just the guy was so nice to us, and I kept trying to find some way of saying stop, stop talking, saying that. stop telling how buttery it is. But there was not ever a good point for me to tell her to stop talking about the butteriness. This is so cringeworthy. Oh, God, it was the worst. But some people really <laughs> like the butteriness. What can I say? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Oh, gosh, I would have crawled inside my skin. Uh. <laughs> I tried. Yeah. All right, Palmer, what's next? Oh, uh, let's see. Well, um, just go, keeping with the theme of, uh, of fermentation stress, we have esters. Now, most of us regard esters as a good thing. You know, you have very pleasant esters that appear in your in your ales, in your lagers. They're fermented a little bit colder, and those uh, those yeast strains uh, tend to promote less esters in their beer. Well, esters again are one of these fermentation byproducts that the yeast create, um, and in the case of, and in this case, um, yeast are taking in uh, different. Uh, fatty acids, and they're synthesizing different fatty a- length fatty acids into the you know the wort sterols that we talk about, and you know uh, lipids that they need for their cell membrane and so on. They're they're basic you know nutrients for the yeast cell. Mm-hmm. Well, as they're you know the, so the, let's let's hypothetically let's say the yeast cell looks out into the wort and says, okay, I want a ten chain. Um, 10 carbon chain uh, fatty acid, but there's a, only I only see 12 and 15s. So they'll they'll grab the 12s and 15s, chop off the ends, and now they got their 10. Well, those short chain fatty acids are very toxic to the yeast, and so what they do, and I probably and uh, all of you experts out there, please forgive me on the number of carbon chains. Uh, but just make trying to make an example. These short chain fatty acids are toxic, and the yeast will take that that piece and combine it with uh, other uh, alcohols and so on, and create an ester. And they use some enzymes, one uh, acetyl transferase and coal um, acetyl CoA um, uh, enzymes to create these esters. So esters are you know, a way for the yeast to detoxify their environment. And so uh, high growth rates can pr- produce lots of esters because they they need to uh, detoxify their environment more. Um, very low uh, pitching rates can also cause a lot of esters because, again, you have lots of yeast growth as the yeast rush to fill this available area. Mm-hmm. So um, in other it, I guess the bottom line or the, the is that stressful fermentations produce more esters. Less stressful or optimum for fermentations produce uh, less esters, but uh, produce a, a um, spectrum of ester that we find uh, pleasant. Okay. Or desirable esters. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then I sometimes get confused between esters and uh, and phenols. Okay, well, phenols are the kind of spicy 
uh, flavors by comparison or aromas by comparison. So esters we generally regard as fruity. Phenols uh, we tend to characterize as more spicy, and they can be like uh, pepper, black pepper, white pepper. Okay. Um, the good cloves. ones, anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brian, you were going to say? Yeah, I was going to say that the good phenols smell spicy. Like good pepper, rather than like like green peppers, maybe not, but like black rather pepper. Rather than like the band, like Band-Aids, that. Smoky, yeah. you know, something like that. But yeah, and a, a good Saison, for example, or a, a, wit, or a, a, wit, a, a, a vice beer, mm-hmm. Hefeweizen, you want that some kind of spiciness. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, very good point, yeah. So, yeah, your good phenols are, tend to be spicy. Your bad phenols tend to be plasticky. Okay. And uh, you can you – can, and smoky is another one, another aspect that can, can occur. Um, smoky phenols tend to occur due to autolysis, and as we, you all were discussing earlier. Um, fortunately, autolysis is not something that we run into as much these days. That's mm-hmm. pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, – I guess we can kind of transition to autolysis. Um, Autolysis is, you know, the yeast dying and spilling their guts into the beer. And these flavors can be smoky, meaty, uh, broth, um, you know, uh, umami is another uh, flavor that is often ascribed to these, to the autolysis flavors. Yeah, sorry, I, I stepped on you there, John. No, I think of that like soy sauce, tire rubber mm-hmm. right, kind of fl- right. uh, a flavor. In a, not that I've sat down and chewed a tire, but if you've smelled a tire you, and, and you can kind of imagine how it might taste. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the, yeah, and these are through the, this. These happen through fermentation stress. Well, not autolysis, but the excessive phenols um, would be fermentation stress, and then autolysis is yeast uh, dying. Yeah, and both can be a, a source of phenols, excess phenols. Okay, uh, and, and phenols, as, as Brian sorry. pointed out, you know, different yeast strains uh, can be phenol positive or phenol negative. Uh, Hefeweizen yeast is phenol positive. A lot of your Belgian yeasts are also phenol, phenol positive, and this is where we look for these spicy notes in, say, Belgian wit, saison, hefeweizen, and so on. Okay, and you mentioned you know plastic as one of these excessive phenols, like kind of that that plasticky. And I wanted to bring up, I don't know if anyone knows anything about this, but I have also noticed that through uh, heavily hopped young beers if the beer oh, yeah, yeah. You, and i don't know if it's like a bottle shock that takes place or it's just like a super fresh but that that plastic phenol can can be from hops sometimes as well is that your experience yeah, or i think that may be a, a similar smelling but different compound okay might be your isovaleric acid type uh, oxidation compound from the from the hops. Okay. Um, you have uh, we t- you know we talk about hop polyphenols and that's the the, the you know the green part the cone of the hops. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, a polyphenol is simply a polymer of phenols. So yeah, at, during the boil or uh, as a result of oxidation, you can have. Um, these some of these plasticky phenols, I think, being liberated uh, okay. into the beer. Um, and I guess organic, I go ahead. 
Oh, no, I was just going to say this organic chemistry is not my strong point, so uh, I may be a little bit wrong. And that's kind of, and and same with me, that I don't know exactly where to pinpoint this. I guess I really only bring it up to, to say that when you get into the phenols, it's it's not as as black and white. Sometimes there can be some other stuff going on rather than yes. just a, a poor fermentation, right? Right. Yeah. The, you it could be simply an ingredient uh, issue, you know, oxidized hops being used um, that contribute more of this character uh, that makes it noticeable. Sure. Um, several several possible causes. Yeah. And, and phen- the, phenols, sorry. phenols are a very broad class of mm. uh, chemicals as well. Yeah, and John, I would jump in for a second and say, to me, phenol is, that that plastic smoky phenol is probably the most consistent off flavor I've encountered in competitions, Mm. homebrew competitions, in the last 10, 15 years. Okay. And one one source is contamination, wild yeast, and so forth. And I I speculate without experimental evidence because you know this is you know it's anecdotal and mm-hmm. it's you know, pure speculation that one reason that is is just bad packaging practice. Uh, we've all done it. We've all been there. We've all tried to package beer for competition. I had terrible phenol issues uh, packaging in. I would try to clean my bottles in the dishwasher. Mm. <laughs> don't don't yeah. do that, mm-hmm. homebrewers. Just just don't do that. Uh, I went to the Jamil approach of just uh, buying new bottles for mm. competition. Uh, if you're going to compete, just just get new bottles. Yeah, right. And it's also. Uh, um, I mean, in, in, speaking in another Jamil bit of advice from you know a blast from the way far past, uh, garden hose. Don't use it. Use the potable <laughs> water RV hose. I used to have ter- phenol, very subtle phenol in all my beer, and I was using a garden hose. And Jamil told right. me, "Well, do you drink out of that hose?" Yeah. Well, no, it tastes nasty. Well, do you think your beer is not going <laughs> to taste nasty if you use that nasty old hose? Right. It says, yeah, yeah. Go get the white RV hose. So I think it's a little stuff like that that persists. I think that maybe not a lot of people are using that nasty old garden hose, yeah. but I think that maybe unclean or not perfectly clean uh, and not perfectly sanitized old bottles are maybe a cause why this is such a persistent issue in competition. Yeah. Okay. Yep. yep. Very good point. Glad you brought that up. All right. And do we want to talk about fusels before we, we move on to Sure, yeah, fusel alcohols or higher alcohols, um, those are uh, part and parcel with fermentation. I mean, you know, the yeast take in, uh, you know, uh, nutrients and they kick out uh, ethanol as a uh, primary waste product. But um, there are, other, they also kick out other alcohols and, you know, due to the, the composition of the wort. And, um, when those alcohols uh, pass a certain threshold, then they become noticeable and will often describe a beer as being hot mm-hmm. or slightly solventy. And uh, that is these fusel oils or alcohols that uh, are manifesting in the beer. And again, you can prevent these with you know good fermentation practice, a stressful fermentation high temperatures, low oxidation, over-oxidation. Uh, you know, anytime you get on the wrong side of the, or get away on way to the sides of the bell curve in terms of the process, you're going to have a chance of producing more of these uh, these byproducts. 
Yeah, Fusel to me is that classic homebrew fermentation where you're not temp controlled and not even where you're brewing at 95 degrees or fermenting at 95 degrees in your garage in summertime. It's more of an issue of, hey, you have a lot of yeast. You've pitched properly. You, you're putting your your beer in, or your wort in a 70-degree hall closet. Well, without any temp control, that yeast is going to chew through primary fermentation and like, 18 to 24 hours mm-hmm. but it's going right. it's going to have an excursion and the bigger the original gravity is you're going to have an excursion up to 80 90 degrees and for most styles of beer that is not good it doesn't lead to anything good for the, all the reasons you've discussed uh, earlier here John but that I mean the fusels to me are always like the hallmark of oh god this beer was uh, not temperature controlled in the slightest not even in terms of putting it in the basement right. uh, it was just left out in a, a, a corner someplace because hey people have small living spaces and they do what they can do yeah uh, but that's that's the hallmark of high temp fermentation okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. That's right. Well, why don't we take a a break here? And when we come back, we're going to discuss sulfur and uh, and some aldehyde stuff. Um, And of course, uh, we got to talk about oxidation. uh, You know, a a common problem that people find. So, uh, hang in there. Uh, You're listening to the Brew Strong, and we'll be right back. Back to your hosts, Jamil Zainashef and John Palmer. Putting the testicles in technical. This is Brew Strong. Well, I'm Justin filling in for Jamil, but I'm doing my best to keep it technical. Palmer here. <laughs> You're doing very well. Very well. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Um, well, why don't we talk about uh, sulfur, sulfites, sulfides, uh, these yeah. things. Yeah, sulfur sulfur is, is a common problem in uh, competition. Um, I get a lot of beers where you get this vegetal cooked cabbage, uh, onion kind of flavor. Uh, Brian, you, you get that pretty often too. Not not that much, believe it or not. Maybe that's a difference between Bay Area water and LA water. Okay. Okay. Related um, to that, well, or you know, I, I don't know. I'd be curious about your uh, about your thoughts on that because I, I don't generally get a huge amount of sulfur in the Bay Area comps that I judge. Okay, yeah, I it's it seems to be fairly common in the competitions I go to, um, and I've been been very curious about it, so I've been looking into it. Um, uh, Sulfites and sulfides are generated by the yeast during fermentation. Um, they will take sulfate from the water, SO4, and you know use it as an oxidizer in creating um, different amino acids that they need during during the lag phase. And as a result, they'll kick off uh, sulfide and sulfites. Uh, during which are SO3 and SO2. Um, or sorry, as, sulfides are just S, no, no oxygens. Um, and depending on your yeast strain and so on, you'll have you know different uh, levels of these compounds produced. Some lager yeast strains are, are very well known for producing you know, rotten egg odors, hmm. you know, the hydrogen sulfide. Um, and... As the beer ages, uh, you can have, again, 
uh, breakdown or uh, oxidation of different uh, aldehydes and amino acids uh, with these sulfur compounds that can create uh, these aromatics. And so uh, some of them, um, are a couple of the common ones are like uh, methionyl and methanethiol. And methanethiol is also known as methylmercaptan. And you've probably heard talk about mercaptans uh, in sensory, Brian. That kind oh, yes. of uh, sewer drain kind of smell. Hmm. Mm, that's what you want in your beverage is yeah. mm, sewer yeah. drain. Yeah. So that, that sewer drain or rotten cabbage kind of smell, that's due to the... Uh, the methane thiol or methyl mercaptan, as it's also known. So that's a very common uh, sulfur character that can be then can get into beer. Um, and again, its origin seems to be uh, partly from the malt, partly from the yeast strain, and how that and the kinds of amino acids that yeast strain ne- uh, needs to grow, as well as oxidation. In the package, mm-hmm. uh, where you know chemically the these uh, different compounds will chemically oxidize over time to produce these mercaptans. So, so preventing this is, is to try to package as cleanly as possible. Um, yeah, right. Low oxygen packaging. I mean, and especially for commercial brewers. I mean, uh, you know, so many brewers are canning these days. You, you, you. Really, as a commercial brewer, you've got to bite the bullet and get a uh, a package DO uh, oxygen meter mm-hmm. or total package oxygen uh, me- uh, tester. Um, because, yeah, as, as if your beer sits warm on the shelf, um, oxidation will happen and it produces these different staling flavors. Mm-hmm. And as a home brewer, you might want to pick up yourself a Blickman beer gun um, yes. to reduce uh, the amount of oxygen you, when you're bottling for competitions and such. Uh, nobody's going to get zero oxygen. So, so John, am I correct in assuming that over time, some of these things are just unavoidable? That's why we, you know, there's a point yeah. where, where beer has a shelf life. Yeah, there, there's a there's a bunch of compounds that are very common in. Uh, in aged beer, mm-hmm. you know, as the beer sits on the shelf, and that's that um, that methylmercaptan. Um, there's another one called phenylacetaldehyde, which is a honey-like aroma, and I get that one in lagers very often. Um, the, everybody's familiar with that papery smell, trans nonanol. Mm-hmm. That's another aldehyde uh, that's common in oxidized pale lagers. Um, dimethyl trisulfide is another. Uh, pretty common one and that one has an oniony character and i think you t- i often pick that up in uh in ipas where it's uh a, can be coming from aged hops as well as aged malt uh generating dimethyl trisulfide or straight up summit hops just, just yeah. sorry, yeah. Yeah. Summit to me always has a garlic and onion mm. taste, uh, and that's uh, meant to be slightly uh, comedic. But that's also maybe a, a thing to think about, right? Your hops can have, uh, depending on when they're harvested and what condition they're in, when you brew with them, they can lend an oniony uh, flavor to your IPAs or hoppy beers. 
So, right. so maybe if you're troubleshooting and you haven't really had issues with this onion before, and now you try a new hop and you're noticing it, it might be that before it could be some of this oxidation. It could be. Right. It's right how Simcoe can be cat pee mm-hmm. if it's harvested at the wrong time. Remember, that was an issue that people discussed, what, five, six years ago when Simcoe got big. Right. Uh, that, oh, my God, this is great beer, but then this one's cat piss. Right. Well, it depends if you harvest too I forget if it was too early or, or too, too late, late. Yeah. Uh, yeah. that yeah. you would have more of a cat pee character. But if you harvested at the proper time, it was phenomenal. Okay. Yeah. But if you're tasting onion in your beer, no matter what hop you're using, you might have some oxidation problems. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Oxidation does happen to every beer. Um, the best the best commercial packaging uh, they can do is to get down to, say, five parts per billion of oxygen in the package. Mm-hmm. And that level will you know, give you a pretty good shelf life, you know, three to six months um, without, you know, any without heavy stale flavors like this. Okay. But, you know, on a, if you're not using uh, Blickman beer gun at the home level or uh, purging your bottles or kegs, it's very easy to get, you know, uh, a small amount of oxygen, say one ppm, but one ppm can definitely cause these oxidized flavors. Okay. And especially as you go higher to five or seven ppm, like if you're Let's say you take uh, your beer and then you you add some water to dilute it, you know, at post fermentation. Um, normal tap water can have you know five, seven, even ten parts per billion of oxygen, or sorry, parts per million, and that will readily oxidize the beer. Mm, okay, good to know. And some of these flavors, just to point out, you know, these are we're, we're covering the off flavors here. Um, but in you know, in your aged barley wines and other things, there there are some desirable ones. A little bit of raisin and sherry in in yeah. in moderate amounts, right? A little right. a little toffee, um, you know, even molasses stuff like that. Those, of course, can go in in a in a supreme direction where that now it it's not good anymore. But um, yeah. a nice aged bar- barley wine will will have some of these oxidized characteristics, right? Yeah, we yeah, we call that complexity. Yeah. Okay, yeah, and it, in moderation, you know, it's, it's some complexity yeah. in moderation before it yeah. turns into uh, rotten cabbage or, um, yeah, all of a sudden sewer it's a, drain. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. John, yeah. before we get too far away from the sulfur, I had a a, a question for you or just a, a thought because. For many years, I would use the uh, Camden tablets, the potassium metabisulfide, oh, yeah. to treat my water to get rid of the uh, the chloramines, right? Because most of us in the U.S. now have uh, chloramine rather than chlorine uh, water purification in the municipal right. water system. And the chl- chlorine will kind of blow off overnight. The chloramines won't. Hmm. So you put in, like, you know, for, what, 10, 15 gallons of water, I'd add, like, half a Camden tablet. Uh, and I, I looked for I, I looked into a while back. I was curious about the chemistry of this, and I couldn't track down a lot of it. Uh, but as far as I could tell, because uh, I, I had a friend that was allergic to sulfites, and just would make her aware, okay, there's a little, maybe a little bit in here, and she never had any problems, but I wanted to look at that first. And most of my, what little research I did indicated that the potassium metabisulfite would react with the chlorine and then just volatilize and get out of the liquid. 
But I wonder if maybe people are, if you're maybe using too much, like you're putting in a whole Camden tablet for five gallons, when that should be enough to treat probably 10 times that much water. Uh, I wonder, do you think that causes potentially sulfur or sulfur-related off flavors? It could, but uh, generally one cam. I think... Yeah, uh, I think I recommend one cabinet cabinet tablet for twenty gallons. Okay. So, um, and at four, you know, four parts per million of chloramine that you're neutralizing with it, um, you're going to generate about ten ppm of sulfate and chloride. So very small concentrations uh, end up. Now, let's say. Let's say you added, you know, one Camden tablet for five gallons, as you said, so four times as much. Well, you could have, say, 15 or 20 ppm of uh, metabisulfite in solution uh, going into beer. I think the yeast would probably take care of that. Okay. Um, I mean, or... What the, the the yeast activity would probably overwhelm that com- concentration. Um, that's a great question, though. That'd be worth looking up in some of the uh, the uh, you know journal archives and seeing what the threshold for um, sulfites are um, in beer. But yeah, I think you you are correct though that in the with even though sulfite metabisulfite is an antioxidant. Um, it would when when we and we talk about you know Maillard reaction products and the melanoidins also being antioxidants. Um, in packaging, these antioxidants that have done some antioxidant you know work up front can later break down and ah. you know put the put flavor compounds back into the beer over time. So. Um, I think, yeah, too much metabisulfite could, could definitely have negative consequences in that regard. There okay, you interesting. Go. Yeah, I knew that you would know like 10 times more about that chemistry than I did. <laughs> uh, t- I try to read. <laughs> I know 10 times more about everything than anybody. I went to that Derek Zoolander Institute for kids who can't read good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Well, that covers our common off flavors program for today. Well done, John Palmer. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Brian Sharp, thanks for joining us on today's show and helping out. Oh, thanks for having me. It was a blast. Yeah, really. Do we, do we have time for like Justin's medical corner first? <laughs> we do not. <laughs> <laughs> you can find more Brian Shar over on the Dr. Homebrew podcast right here on the Brewing Network. Just search Dr. Homebrew uh, where they evaluate your beer. If you want to send your beer in for that show, just send it to Dr. Homebrew at thebrewingnetwork.com. Uh, send an email and uh, they'll get you lined up. You can send show questions and topic ideas to this show at brewstrong at thebrewingnetwork.com. And Palmer reads all of those emails, so it's a great way to, to get your ideas here on the show. So, well done, Mr. Palmer. Thank you so much. Ah, thank you. Bruce Strong, everyone. Bruce Strong. Bruce Strong. Bruce Strong.